0: So I've chosen a new text for today's message, Genesis chapter 7, verse 11. On that day, the springs of the earth burst forth, and the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 (laughs) nights. (laughs) Hasn't been quite that long, but it feels like it sometimes. So we're going to talk about something today a little less depressing than rain. We're going to talk about religion. Is religion a good thing or a bad thing? It's pretty well established that human beings are incurably religious. Virtually every people group from the most primitive to the most sophisticated through all of history has had some sort of shared spiritual beliefs and practices that have shaped their lives and their society. So is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's an ages-old debate, but it's been revived in recent years by the so-called new atheists, People like Richard Dawkins who wrote The God Delusion. Christopher Hitchens who wrote God is Not Great. Those who say that religion is not good will point to the atrocities that have been committed in the name of religion. Whether the Crusades of the Middle Ages or the Holocaust of the 20th 20th century or the religiously fueled terror attacks of our own contemporary time. We are far too familiar with violent religious extremism. And we, of course, renounce it in any form against any religion and in the name of any religion, including our own. Critics of religion will also point to the fact that it can divide people as often as it unites people. That religion can be used to control people and to subjugate people and to stifle their freedom and creativity and self-expression. People who say that religion is is a good thing will point to the civilizing effect that religion has on humankind. Religion motivates people to live ethical lives and to be compassionate. Universities, hospitals, orphanages, relief agencies, most of them have been founded and supported by people of faith. Some of the most beautiful artistic and musical expressions in human history have been inspired by people's religious beliefs. The rise of science was fueled in large part by people of faith who believed that God gave us this world to be explored and understood and stewarded for good purposes. On a personal level, religion brings people comfort. It brings strength. It holds them together in times of difficulty. And religion, of course, offers people a hope for the life to come. Virtually every religious system is based on some notion of a life beyond this life and offers a set of beliefs and behaviors that can secure you a good place in that life to come, whatever it is. So clearly, religion can be a good thing or a bad thing. It can be argued either way. The fact that you and I are here today suggests that we think religion's worth at least an hour or so of our time on a Sunday. But what did Jesus think about religion and the role it plays in attaining eternal life? Eternal life is what we're talking about this spring in the series we're calling Life Beyond. Last week, we reminded ourselves that eternal life isn't just longer life in that it goes on forever. It's also better life in the sense that it's more satisfying, it's more meaningful than a life that's lived for Earthly achievements and, and experiences. We're spending time in the Gospels. We're meeting people who were living a certain kind of a life until they met Jesus, who introduced them to a different kind of a life, a life that seemed to offer more than they had been experiencing. So two weeks ago, we met an irreligious, self-sufficient tax collector named Matthew, who was doing just fine till Jesus pointed him in a new direction. Last week, we a virtuous young, met a virtuous young man, a good man with power and wealth, who thought he was living a good life but came to Jesus looking for something more. He ended up walking away sad because he wasn't prepared to let go of the life he'd been living. And every week, we're asking ourselves how we feel about the life we're living and how confident we are about the life to come. So why don't we just pause for a moment and do that very intentionally right now. How do you feel about the life you're now living? Is it meaningful? Is it satisfying? Is it everything you hoped your life would be? And how confident are you about the life to come? Do you know where and how you'll spend eternity? I was speaking to a longtime Grace Chapel person just this week. She reminded me that back in the day, if you visited Grace Chapel on a Sunday morning, you would likely get a visit at your home on a Tuesday or Wednesday night with a couple folks from Grace Chapel. They'd knock on your door, and after starting a little conversation, they would ask you a very pointed question. If you were to die tonight, do you know you would go to heaven? How's that for a conversation starter? (laughs) So how about it? How would you answer that question? So let's meet another character in the scripture today, wrestling with some of these same questions. I'm not sure if you could identify with the irreligious tax collector or with the rich young ruler, but I'm pretty sure we can all identify with the man we're going to meet today. A very religious man who came to Jesus at night. Let's see what Jesus had to say to him and to us about religion and about eternal life. So we're going to read the story together. I think I'll suggest we read it as we did last week, kind of interactively, so we get a feeling for the conversation. But this week, I'll let you read the Jesus lines, okay? (laughs) And I'll be the other guy. So we're reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one can perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter into their mother's womb a second time to be born. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So what do we know about this man named Nicodemus? Well, we're told, we're told right out that he was a Pharisee. Now, in that ancient religious culture, Pharisees were a highly regarded people. They specialized in knowing the scriptures and in keeping the scriptures. They often led services in the local synagogue. They offered spiritual guidance to people. In other words, they were a lot like pastors. They taught the Bible. They ran services. They counseled people. But here's the thing. Pharisees weren't pastors. They weren't religious professionals. They weren't clergy. They were regular people. They were lay people who had their own careers and work. They just happened to be highly committed to their faith and their religion. And so think of them as you might think of elders or deacons today or as small group leaders or as kid's town workers or as church musicians or as ushers and greeters and cafe workers. In other words, think of them as people like you and me very religious. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not especially comfortable with that label religious. Okay, imagine you're standing on the sidelines of a soccer game or you're at a, at a wedding reception talking to somebody and, and they want to introduce you to somebody and they said, oh, hey, meet my friend Brian. He's really religious. <laughs> you know, is that a good thing? Is that going to make them want to talk to me? <laughs> or, or, or are they going to run for cover somewhere? I mean, religious, that sounds stuffy. It sounds self-righteous. But for most of us, the shoe fits. We're pretty religious, like Nicodemus. Now, the interesting thing about Nicodemus is that he comes to Jesus at night. John makes it very clear. Now, it could be that he was coming in secret. Even at this early stage, the religious establishment has already taken a stand against Jesus. In fact, in the chapter right before this, Jesus raises a ruckus in the temple. So he's a troublemaker. So it could be Nicodemus is taking a risk by visiting Jesus this way. So he comes at night so as not to be seen. But it's also true that John uses light and darkness symbolically throughout his gospel. And darkness symbolizes ignorance and even evil. So John seems to be suggesting that this very religious man is actually in the dark spiritually. Well, true to form, Nicodemus begins the conversation with a very religious comment. Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. Now, Nicodemus is both flattering Jesus, but also establishing the fact that he and Jesus are kind of in the same league, religiously speaking. You might imagine a couple of scientists bumping into each other at a symposium, and one of them says, oh, Dr. So-and-so, yes, I just read your journal article on molecular biology and its interface with behavioral epigenetics. Very fine work, I thought. (laughs) It's that kind of thing. Jesus is not impressed. He's really not interested in Nicodemus' religious credentials. In fact, he's really not interested in religion at all. And so he changes the subject. He throws a curveball. More to the point, he throws a brushback pitch. In reply, Jesus declared, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Wait, what? Nicodemus is probably thinking. I'm just trying to start a conversation here, Jesus, and you're trying to convert me. A couple expressions we should talk about here. The kingdom of God, we talked about it last week. Jesus uses it almost interchangeably with eternal life. The kingdom of God is simply the rule of God. It is life lived God's way and for God's purposes. And since the Jews believed that a day was coming when God would rule perfectly over all creation, they associated the kingdom of God with the life to come, with the age to come, eternal life. And so that expression, kingdom of God, really wasn't confusing to Nicodemus. What caught him by surprise, what put him back on his heels, was the expression, born again. He'd never heard that one before. Now, if you happen to have, have your own Bible open in front of you, you probably see a little footnote next to that expression indicating that it could also be translated born from above. And probably that's how Jesus meant it. He's been talking about the kingdom of God, which people generally associate with up there somewhere. So Jesus probably meant born from above. Nicodemus heard born a second time. Either way, he doesn't know what to make of the expression. And he's not the only one. These many centuries later, people still struggle with this idea of being born again. Now, you don't hear it quite as often. It's not quite as popular as it was a generation or so ago, back when people like Jimmy Carter or Chuck Colson or Bob Dylan made that term famous. Back in those days, I was part of a high school club, a Christian club that met after school. We were called High B.A. You know what it stood for? High School Born-Againers. How's that for cool? (laughs) Gives you real street cred in the hallway in high school. (laughs) High School Born-Againer, yep. Well, needless to say, a lot of people are confused and even uncomfortable about that expression born again. Which is probably why we don't use it as often these days. But since Jesus himself came up with it, it's probably a good idea to understand what he has in mind. So let's listen to his explanation. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh and spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus is simply saying that in the same way that natural life begins with a birth experience, spiritual life begins with a birth experience. You enter into the natural world by a physical birth, and so you enter into heavenly world the kingdom of God by a spiritual birth whether you call it born again or born from above the idea is something has to happen to you for you to enter into life with God similarly a, a person can't give birth to themselves someone has to do that for you thank you mother You also can't give birth to yourself spiritually. Someone has to do that for you. And that someone is the one who made you God Himself. Flesh gives birth to flesh, spirit gives birth to spirit. Then Jesus goes on to say that this spiritual birth experience is real, but it's mysterious. You can't see it, but you know when it's happened. It's like the wind, he says. was a famous children's poem by Christina Rossetti. Who has seen the wind? Neither I nor you. But when the leaves hang trembling, the wind is passing through. Who has seen the wind? Neither you nor I. But when the trees bow down their heads, the wind is passing by. You can't see the wind, but you know it's there. You can feel it. You can see its effect. You know that something is happening. And the same is true with being born again, being born from above. You know that something's happened to you. You you may not know exactly what or how it happened, but you know that something is different. Something is stirring inside of you. There's a a freedom. There's a purpose. There's a sense of presence that, that God is actually real and with you. And it's as real and as powerful as wind blowing through the trees. Now, has that happened to you? I'm not asking if you had some dramatic spiritual, mystical experience. It doesn't have to be that. You, you may not be able to point to a time and place when it happened. You may still have doubts and struggle with faith. You may have wandered from that experience. But you know something has happened. At some point in time, something began to stir within you and you sensed God breathing life into your soul. You've been born again. You've been born from above. You've discovered life with God. Has that happened to you? How can this be, Nicodemus asked. Whatever Jesus is describing, he's pretty sure it hasn't happened to him. He wants to know more. Now, keep in mind, Nicodemus is is living a pretty good life right now. He's got high standing in the community. He's well-educated. He's a man of fine ethical behavior, and he's religious. I mean, if anybody had a lock on eternal life, it should have been Nicodemus. But suddenly, he's not so sure. What Jesus is describing hasn't happened to him. How can this be? Well, now that Jesus has his attention, he gets to the punchline. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Jesus keeps him back on his heels a little bit. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, Son of Man was an Old Testament expression for Messiah. It also happened to be Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself, but Nicodemus doesn't know that yet. Jesus is saying... If you want to get into the kingdom of heaven, you probably need help from someone who's been there, someone who knows the way, someone who has access. And then, knowing how difficult it would be for Nicodemus to understand this abstract spiritual concept, knowing how difficult it would be for us to understand that concept, Jesus tells a story, or at least he reminds Nicodemus of a story he would have known very well. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, Jesus says, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Generations earlier, when the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness on their way to the Promised Land, they grumbled against God. And so they were set upon by venomous snakes. And when they were bit, they died in great numbers. So they cried out to God for help, and the Lord told Moses to make a serpent out of bronze and to put it on a pole and to raise that pole up among the people so that whenever anyone was bitten by a snake, all they had to do was look at the pole and they would be healed. They would live. Here's an Instagram post from that event. (laughs) Not exactly, but you get the idea. Nicodemus couldn't have understood it at the time, but Jesus was preparing him for a time when God would do a similar thing and everyone who looked to the Son of Man would live. Now, a long time ago, many years ago, I heard a a sermon from a, a masterful old school preacher who was expounding this text. He described in agonizing detail the crucifixion of Jesus. How he was beaten within an inch of his life. How that crown of thorns was pressed down on his head until the blood ran down his face. How he was mocked and humiliated and spat upon. How he was marched out of the city, forced to carry the beam of wood upon which he would be impaled. How they stretched him out on that cross. And pounded spikes through his hands and feet, shattering the bones and pinning him to that cross. And in that moment, laying on that bloody ground with his captors looming over him, Jesus was among the most pitiable and most defeated human beings who ever lived. But then, the preacher said, they made a mistake his captors made a big mistake. They lifted him up. They lifted him up on that hill for all to see. Didn't they know that Jesus had said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself? Didn't they know Jesus said everyone who looks to the Son of Man would live? When they lifted him up, it changed everything. Did you happen to catch the story in your newsfeed this week about the young girl who was bitten by a snake while hiking in the woods with her summer camp? She was bitten right on the toe by a copperhead. Her counselors knew it was deadly. They also knew they had to keep her calm so that her heart wouldn't begin to race and pump the deadly venom through her system. And so they carried her by piggyback out of the woods, singing Taylor Swift songs as they went to take her mind off of things. They got her airlifted to a hospital where after four vials of anti-venom, she was healed. She was saved. A few weeks later, the parents got a bill for $142,000, the price of the rescue. The message of the Bible, the testimony of human history, is that we are snakebid, every one of us. It happened a long time ago, but we have all been infected with this deadly tendency to do our own thing, to live life our way apart from God. And we can live for quite a while with that venom coursing through our veins. We can distract ourselves with all kinds of pursuits, and we can convince ourselves that maybe things are gonna be okay, but sooner or later, that venom will find its way to our heart, and it will kill us. It will rob us of the life we were meant to live in this life and in the life to come. And the only remedy is to look to the one who was lifted up on our behalf. The one who by his death absorbed sin's deadly poison and whose blood became the anti-venom that would cancel out sin's deadly effects and offer us life again from above with God now and forever. And that's what it means to be born again. To look upon that Jesus and live. Has that happened to you? Again, I'm not asking if you've had a dramatic, mystical, emotional experience. I'm not asking if you can tell me what time and place and what you were wearing when it happened. I'm not asking that. I'm simply asking if you have looked to Jesus, recognizing your sinful condition and receive from him the gift of eternal life. And I'm not asking if you've been baptized or confirmed or if you're a card-carrying member of this church or that church or if you attend services on a regular basis because it turns out religion is not the thing. Religion can be good and religion can be bad, but it will never be enough. Religion can be good, it can be bad, but it can never be enough. It can never save us, it can never change us, it can never heal us on the inside from this deadly tendency we have to do life our way apart from God. Our only hope is for whoever is out there to come towards us and save us. See, religion is simply humanity's attempt to get right with God, to to get on good terms with whoever is out there. But no amount of ritual or religion, no amount of rule-keeping can ever change us on the inside. Our only hope is for whoever was out there to come find us in our wilderness and save us. And that, of course, is what God has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that takes us to the most famous verse in the Bible. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, we don't know if Jesus actually spoke these words Himself The ancient manuscripts don't have quotation marks. Probably it's John's commentary on what was happening. Either way, it would have come as a surprise to Nicodemus because he was not accustomed to thinking of God loving the world. Like most religious people, he was pretty sure God loved his group, the Jews. And God did love the Jews, but God loved the whole world too. And he still does. God loves Jews and Christians and Muslims. God loves Hindus and Buddhists and Zoroastrians. God loves the new atheists and the old atheists. He loves animists and agnostics. He loves all of us. And he loves us so much that he sent his one and only son into the world to find us and to die for us so that we could be forgiven and free and live again. That was the price of our rescue. And everyone who looks to that Jesus, whatever their religious background, will live. Has that happened to you? Have you looked to Jesus and received from him the gift of eternal life? Now, don't ask me right now about people who haven't heard of Jesus. That's another question for another time. I'm talking about people who have heard of Jesus, people like you and me. Have you looked to him and asked him for the gift of eternal life? Have you been born again? Now, we're not told how this conversation with Nicodemus ended that night. At some point, we assume he slipped away again under cover of darkness. Confused, probably, but also intrigued, probably. We meet him again at the end of John's gospel. When Jesus' lifeless body needs to be taken down from the cross, only two men are willing to step up and be publicly identified with Jesus. A rich man named Joseph and a religious man named Nicodemus who once came to Jesus by night. Could it be that Nicodemus was there on that hill when they lifted Jesus up? Could it be in that moment he looked to Jesus and was born again? Who has seen the wind? Neither you nor I. But when the trees bow down their heads, the wind is passing by. Have you done that? Have you bowed your head in the presence of a loving God to receive the gift of eternal life? Have you felt the wind of God's Spirit breathing new and fresh life into you? If you haven't, you can do that today. In just a few minutes, we're going to celebrate communion. And in the same way that those Israelites and Nicodemus needed some physical reminder of what God had done for them with that bronze serpent, we too need physical reminders of what Christ has done for us. And we have the bread and the cup. And when we look to the bread and cup, it speaks to us of Christ's death on the cross for us. And when we receive those elements, it is a way of saying yes to the gift of eternal life. And it could be you're ready to say yes to that gift for the first time today with real understanding. Maybe you've been investigating Christianity for a while. Maybe you've been an alpha. Or maybe you just wandered in today not even knowing what was going to happen, but suddenly you're ready to look to Jesus and live. You could do that. Or or maybe, like many of us, you've already done that. You, you, You know you've been born again. You've been born from above. But maybe, maybe it was a long time ago and you've kind of wandered from that experience. Maybe it's been a long time since you felt a fresh wind of God's spirit blowing through your life. You can say yes to Jesus today too by receiving that bread and that cup, inviting him to breathe new life into your soul. It could be you are enjoying life with God right now and the fullness of his Holy Spirit. And you want to receive the bread and cup today simply as a way of saying, thank you again, Lord Jesus, for what you've done for me. Fill me and fill this congregation with your loving presence so that we can go out and share it to the world. Whatever situation you might be in, as we lift up the bread and the cup today, may we all look to Jesus and live. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these holy moments that you provide for us. We set aside an hour and invite you to speak to us, and you do, through music and silence and prayer and scripture and story. We thank you for making Jesus great in our midst, for giving us that image of him on the cross for us. Thank you, Lord, for the many of us who have found new and eternal life in relationship with him. Give us a fresh awareness and appreciation for that life and a readiness to live it and share it with the world. And if there are some here today, Lord, who need to say yes to you for the first time or the first time in a long time, may they find the freedom and courage to do that by your Holy Spirit. Meet us in these next moments, we pray, around your table. In Jesus' name, amen.